welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Gender and Sex, What Lessons Must We Learn? by Jason Cherry. This is the fourth out of four lessons for our study about gender. The first three lessons were recorded live during Sunday school and are now available on the podcast. And this fourth lesson is a podcast-only lesson. And so <clears throat> some might wonder, why are we talking about gender? Why are, we, why are we studying what the Bible says about gender and what the culture is saying about gender? Well, the, the, the reason can be traced back to a novel. The novel is called The Ugly American, and it was written in the 1950s. And it's about a U.S. Senator, Louis Sears. Now, he's a fictional character in this book, but in this book, the Senator, Louis Sears, who's been in office 18 years, loses his bid for re-election. And so he becomes the United States ambassador to the fictional Asian country of Sarkin. However, he never bothers to learn the language nor the customs of this country. He forbids his staff from becoming too involved in Sarkinese society. The problem is that he doesn't know what's happening. He can't read the papers, and he cannot communicate American interest. One day, American ships arrive with shipments of rice. The boxes are loaded on trucks and driven inland. The American workers present the boxes of rice with smiles. Unbeknownst to them, communists have written a message in Sarkinese on each sack, which says, This rice is a gift from Russia. So what's the lesson for us from this novel, The Ugly American? Well, the lesson for us is that if we fail to learn the language and customs of the ideologies that are especially persuasive to many Christian young people, we are limited in our ability to communicate the content of the Bible's message. And that's why we've done this study on gender. And so our first week we considered gender in creation and we looked at the book of Genesis and asked, what does Genesis teach us about gender? Our second week, the talk was called Gender and Theory, and we looked at what is the history of gender theory. Our third lesson was called Gender and Sex, and sex there was used as a verb. We were answering the question, how does the gender paradigm pervert sex? And this talk is called Gender and Sex, and sex here is used as a noun. And we're asking, what lessons must we learn? And so, as we think about gender and sex, again, sex I'm using here as a noun, <clears throat> you know, it used to be the case that bodily sex referred to the person as a whole and was characterized by reproductive potential. Before the 20th century, the word gender was uncommon and referred to a category, such as the feminine gender, which was basically a synonym for womanhood. 
It was more customary to speak of words having gender. In other words, the nouns in various languages denote gender. This is the case in Greek and Latin. The word sex was used primarily as a noun to refer to male and female differences. It is only recently that the word sex became shorthand for sexual intercourse, which is a phrase signaling the bodily nature of sex as a noun and its connection to reproduction. So, so for example, in Aristotle's book, Generation of Animals, a male is the animal that generates in another, and a female is the animal that generates within herself. But with the rise of the gender paradigm is an alternative view that centers on the inherently unstable concept of gender. And so we need to understand where did the idea of gender come from, especially as it's now divorced from bodily sex. And there are really two innovations in the mid-20th century that made bodily sex divorced from personhood. The first innovation was separating sex from reproduction. The pill reshaped how we look at the body. The body is now for sterile pleasure. Michael Foucault's four-volume work, A History of Sexuality, argued that sex is only for pleasure. And this is now the dominant view of culture that separates sex from marriage and family. Once bodily sex is divorced from procreative potential, then sex, as a noun, is mere appearance. A sex change is only possible if you remove the procreative role. So sex is transformed from primarily being a noun to primarily being a verb. And so the first innovation was separating sex from reproduction. The second innovation, this is building on the first one, is the new concept of gender. And so much of this traces back to a man named John Money. M-O-N-E-Y, John Money. So in, 19, in the 1950s, the psychologist John Money coined the phrase gender role, where he drew a distinction between sex and gender. And this is largely the, the, the origin of this separation. So for him, sex was a mere biological fact. Gender, though, was a social identity. So John Money did an experiment where he took a set of identical twin boys and raised one as a boy and the other as a girl. Well, how did it end? Well, after multiple surgeries, the, the girl, put that in scare quotes, the girl committed suicide at age 38, and this was in the year 2004. And this was two years after his twin brother's suicide. Again, you can, you can read about this on, on Wikipedia. Nevertheless, despite the fact that Money's theories were fatal, indeed leading to the suicide of his subjects, his ideas about separating gender from sex spread through the academy, including his distinction between sex and gender. 
So, so why did money's theory appeal to second-wave feminists? Well, they thought that women were denied rights because of their biological weakness and differences. So, so for them, gender was a new category that they thought they could use to dislodge the notion of female inferiority. They argued that sex-specific norms spring from culture rather than nature, and therefore cultural changes were necessary to give women greater social equality. But notice how this alters the conception of the human person. Now, in previous weeks, we've, we've spent a lot of time just defining what is a person, biblically, and then how does gender theory pervert the biblical definition of personhood. And so I want you to notice how money's theory alters the conception of the human person. Gender allows feminists to claim that sex, again, sex as a noun, has no intrinsic meaning. Gender intentionally drives a wedge between body and identity such that gender, rather than the body, constitutes identity. And so gender is a made-up concept. And, and that's why gender can be a spectrum. There are competing definitions for gender, even, within gender studies. So, for example, you, you, could, say, you could say gender is just a synonym for sex. And, and that, that would be how Christians would, would use the term. Or you could say that gender is characteristics assigned socially and culturally. And that's basically how the second wave feminists use the term, though this is now considered an outmoded, out-of-fashion definition. Or you could say that gender is performance, a mere illusion of an identity of man and woman, an inherited fiction that people reenact. And that's how Judith Butler defined gender, and we talked a lot about Judith Butler in the third lesson. Or you could say that gender is the sex of the soul, the innate manhood or womanhood that may or may not align with the sex of the boy, or excuse me, is the sex of the body. In this definition, gender is the inner truth against which the outer truth of biology must conform. This is, this is the more current notion of gender. And so, as you can see, in reality, what is gender? Well, as you see it being, it's this invented concept. It operates on a spectrum. The definition seems to change as the fashions change. And so, in reality, gender is an empty shell waiting to be filled with whatever the ideologues come up with next. Some want to say that the definition of a woman is someone who feels like a woman. But as Abigail Favale points out, what does it mean to feel like a woman? And let's think through this. I mean, if I say I feel like a cat, or I identify with being a cat, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that I have affinity with what I imagine it is like to be a cat. Or another example, if I say, as an American, if I say I have an affinity with Mexicans, because I like the language, culture, and enchiladas. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that I have an affinity with and identify with my perception of what it is like to be a Mexican. 
So then, what does it mean to say a woman is someone who feels like a woman? Well, to feel like a woman is to have an affinity for what you imagine a woman to be. Now, what's the problem with that? Why doesn't that work? Well, because to feel is not to be. A man cannot know what it is like to be a woman. He can only know what a man imagines it must be like to be a woman. And as we saw when Bruce Jenner was on the cover of Vanity Fair, for a man to feel like a woman is usually shaped by consumer stereotypes of girls. Once the definition for man and woman is separated from biological sex, it becomes defined by stereotypes, which in the case of Bruce Jenner was that women wear pink and way too much makeup. And so, seeing then the origin of the concept of gender, I now want us, as we conclude our set of lessons on gender, to make eight concluding observations. So here's, here's eight concluding lessons that we need to learn from our study of gender in previous weeks. First, it teaches us that the medical authorities are not flawless. The medical authorities are not flawless. Modern medicine is incredible. Modern health technology heals many people. The advances in modern medicine have brought so much good, so many good treatments, an extension of life, and many good surgical procedures. And, and that's why when the medical establishment makes a pronouncement, Americans tend to believe them. But the way so many medical authorities are lying about gender means there is a moral catastrophe happening in the medical schools and the medical professional organizations all around the country. We should be reminded that we can't just blindly follow what so-called medical science claims is true. For example, in 2017, the Endocrine Society released new guidelines of care for teenagers with gender dysphoria, requiring doctors to prescribe puberty-suppressing drugs. Now, there is no scientific research to support such a requirement. This is not a requirement based on medical science or peer-reviewed medical science. This is purely a political requirement. And think about this from the broader perspective. On the one hand, the medical community requires the use of irreversible, experimental, experimental puberty-blocking drugs that forever change someone, often then leading to, in terms of down the road, leading to suicide. But then on the other hand, the medical community forbids the use of certain drugs to treat COVID because we were told that they're merely experimental and it's unsupported by drug trials. And so then our question for the medical community is, well, which is it? Do these drugs have to be supported by drug trials or do they not? And it should be clear that not all medical decisions made by the medical community and by these, by these authoritative groups and guilds are done in the name of medicine. At least, at least some of it is in the name of political 
ideology. And the truth is, is that none of this is new. This isn't new to us as Christians because of COVID, and it's not new to us as Christians because of because of uh, what's happening in gender theory. Uh, this was revealed to us when you look at the medical establishment's complicity in abortion, going back many, many decades. David Forte writes, quote, the author's description of the moral degradation of the medical profession, for example, is particularly dismaying. The American College of Obstetricians and gynecologists, founded in 1951, eventually became an all-out advocate of therapeutic abortions and the physician's unencumbered determination of abortions' propriety. The American Medical Association underwent the same transformation. End quote. And so, when you go back and look at this, the medical community has also been complicit with abortion. And when you look at the mad rush of physicians to embrace political fads, it makes you wonder, what is the moral grounding in medical education today? And really, we need to travel back to the heyday of the eugenics movement in the early 20th century to see how imprudently much of the medical profession has faddishly pursued dangerous political conceits. And we're seeing this now in gender theory. And so the first lesson for us to learn is that the medical authorities are not flawless. It's something we need to remember as Christians. The second lesson to learn is that this teaches us about how ideas are transmitted. We need to pay very careful attention to this in our new modern world, about how ideas are transmitted. We are seeing that the gender paradigm began in the academy. Gender theory began in the academy, but it didn't stay in the academy. It has sprung out of academia to influence the culture, to influence Hollywood and the entertainment companies, to influence sports, publishing, music, and fashion. We're fooling ourselves if we think that we in our families and our churches are immune from this kind of influence. We have to be educated on these things because the pressure for conformity is felt by all. And that, again, that's one of the big reasons we felt convicted to do a Sunday school with four lessons on the subject of gender. This is a, a deep and complicated world. We don't want the members of Trinity Reformed Church to have to waste a bunch of time reading all of the books about all of the nonsense going on in gender theory. And so that's why we're teaching on this, so you can learn about it in a concise amount of time and not have to waste a bunch of time diving into it. But nevertheless, we've got to be educated on these things because the pressure for conformity is going to be felt, even by us, even by Christians who think we're shielding our families from the pressures of the world. Lesson number three. It teaches us about how the young are vulnerable. Of course, Abigail Schreier has pointed out how vulnerable the young are to getting caught up in the fad of gender bending. And there are generational differences here that we have to be aware of. The younger generation is more susceptible to these ideas. And there's now so much statistics and, and evidence coming out about this. That, that the younger generation are susceptible to the onslaught of messaging coming from the influential world of the arts and Hollywood and entertainment and publishing and fashion and social media. A person's 
guiding framework shapes their experiences. And so if their guiding framework is, is teen culture, where a certain explanatory narrative of autonomy is embedded, that's going to shape how they interpret the world and how they choose to act within it. And so we've got to be aware of how the young are vulnerable. Lesson number four. It teaches us about the power of the internet to sucker people into nonsense. The internet especially lends itself to gender theory. Why? Well, there's three reasons. First, the internet is a place for minority groups to connect. And again, this is something Abigail Favale points out. When a confused person connects with the trans community online, the pro-trans groups aggressively encourage teenagers to transition, showering them with affirmation and encouragement. And it's a cult-like atmosphere. Second, the internet is a bodiless place. It's easy to believe that bodies don't matter online because the internet is a bodiless place. Even pictures of bodies on the internet often aren't real. They're, they're, they're just curated two-dimensional images. And then the third reason that the internet especially lends itself to gender theory is that the internet is a place for self-invention. Self-invention. And that's really what gender theory is. And so there's a limitless potential for self-invention, unbounded by physical circumstances or physical reality on the internet. Lesson number five. It teaches about how Christians should view the body. We've talked a lot about this in previous weeks. The body, though, we have to understand that the body is not a liability. You know, we might think that. We might think that the physical body leads to all manner of sin, like lust and gluttony and laziness. And, you know, these are sins that involve the body. This might make you think that the body is always working against your soul. But once you realize that your body is not a liability, then you can begin to use the body to benefit your soul. And so you have to conceive of your body as a thing that can, that can help your soul. Remember, going back, what is our understanding of a person? Well, it's body and soul united as one. The body and the soul can't tell different stories about the other. They're united as one. And God gave you this union of body and soul as a gift. This is who you are. This is human nature. And if you understand that, then you can begin to use the reality of personhood. You can begin to use your body as a thing that can help train your soul towards faithfulness. Let me give you just kind of a general principle of an example here. For example, your body is the best tool you have for creating new loves. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's because you can train your body to do certain things. Your body easily develops into habits. And so that then means that doing good things, thinking good things, praying good things over time becomes a habit. And once it's a habit, you can't live without it, which means you can't live without doing good, without praying good, without thinking good. And what have you done? Because of your body, you have 
Through the force of habit, you have created the habit of new loves, loves that God approves of. The sixth lesson is that it teaches about the devil's temptations. You know, the devil doesn't have a body, and so he tries to get you to use your body against your soul. The devil is jealous of human bodies. The devil's jealousy is a theme in Paradise Lost. The devil is the tempter, and the body is a means by which you're often tempted. Now, temptation is not immaterial. Temptations tend toward physical things. Gluttony is not an abstract temptation. Lust is not an abstract temptation. Those are, uh, those are wrapped up in the body. Well, we are instructed to flee the devil. We're instructed to flee temptation. So when the devil tempts us to betray our souls with our bodies, we have to do what Eve should have done at the tree. We have to run. The seventh lesson is it teaches us that there is hope for reversal. There is hope for reversal. You know, you might, you might start thinking about gender theory and what's happening and how it's transformed people's view of personhood and, and how it's just a complete war on God and his, the world he made. And, and, of course, you might think through this and be left with a very pessimistic state of mind. But I want you to know that there is hope for reversal. Let me give you a very uh, tangible example of this. It comes from uh, London, no less. The Telegraph in London reported, and this was in the fall of 2022, it reported that the new proposals by the British National Health Service said that the new clinical approach will reflect evidence that in most cases, gender incongruence does not persist into adolescence. In other words, in Britain, in their medical society, they are admitting that the vast majority of children who are gender confused return to their, in their, in their way of thinking of it, their so-called birth gender, as their real identity. In other words, they're admitting that whatever confusion is there is a transient phase. And, and there's been plenty of evidence on both sides of the Atlantic that for the majority of children and teenagers who reflect some kind of confusion at some point uh, to their gender identity, that this indeed is a transient phase, that it, that it comes but it then goes. And the fact that Great Britain is reversing course in terms of the British National Health Services, that gives us hope that the powers that be in the United States maybe can also reverse course. You know, every generation of Christians face cultural challenges. Yet generation after generation of Christians have joyfully proclaimed Christ's greatness and humility in taking on human form and taking on the guilt of our sin as if it were his own. And in this, Christ conquered sin, death, and the devil. Therefore, the looming threats of aggressive and hostile ideology bound in opposition to Christ are no match. For the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in gender theory 
which diminishes the greatness of Christ and what he has accomplished. Gender theory is just a theory. It's just an abstraction. And that theory, that abstraction, does not undo the reality of Christ raised from the dead and the victory that Christ won in his resurrection. And the eighth and final lesson as we wrap up this uh, this fourth lesson on, gen- on gender is it teaches us the danger of devotion to the self. The world today is in captivity to the self. And gender theory is maybe just the biggest example of that. But also the evangelical church is in particular danger to this same captivity, this captivity to the self. You know, when you read the Bible, you encounter certain sins, such as lying, sloth, and envy. Captivity to self is not like other sins on a list of infractions. Captivity to self is idolatry, a, a pervasive and spiritually debilitating form of idolatry. There is very little difference between devotion to a pagan god and devotion to the self. The gender confusion of our day reminds us that devotion to that self is no less demanding than devotion to God. Devotion to self is a far less loving and far more powerful organizing center of life as any god or goddess on the market. The gender confusion is idolatry to self, taken to the highest degree possible. It is a whoring after the God of self as assiduously as the Israelites in their worst moments in the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ, though, is freedom from the tyranny of self. The gender paradigm is a heavy burden, a heavy yoke. To those living in submission to the imperious demands of self, listen to the words of Jesus Christ from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we see in Matthew 11 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is freedom. It is freedom to forget the self and its insatiable appetite for attention. It is freedom to find joy in making much of God, it is freedom to know you are not at the center of the universe. In this, you are not depreciating yourself in a way that is untrue. Colossians 2.23 says that the gender paradigm is merely the appearance of wisdom, but it's not actual wisdom. Listen to it. Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The gender paradigm is set over against the entire authority of Scripture and the very structures God has given us in creation itself. And that is why gender theory is slavery. It is slavery to the self. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.